This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Welcome to the museum. Um, just acknowledging, first of all, that we meet on Gadigal land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is the second in our series of Saturday Talks. Just one of a suite of events and programs that we've developed with our program partners at Macquarie University um, to bring you a whole load of events associated with the Ramsey's exhibition. My name's Fran Dory, I'm the head of exhibitions here. So my job was to work with the Egyptian government and the American touring agent to get Ramsey's safely here. Our guest speaker today is Dr Murad Sizek, uh, an archaeologist and historian um, who got her PhD from Macquarie University here in Sydney. Her research has focused on relations between ancient Egypt and Western Asia during the 3rd and 2nd millennia BCE and she has worked with archaeological expeditions in Australia and Egypt. She currently teaches archaeology at the University of Sydney, holding honorary research fellowships at Macquarie University and the Australian Institute of Archaeology. So please welcome Dr. Murad Sizek. Thank you, Fran, for the introduction. And thank you all for being here today at such a very busy time of year, as we're all aware. I'd like to also say a personal thanks to some of my family and friends who are here, including Professor Nagit Kanawati. It's an honor to have you here. He's a world-leading Egyptologist, everyone. And it's a pleasure for me to be speaking to, to you all today on the ancient Egyptian journey to the afterlife. Now, I'd like to begin our exploration on a more solemn note. That looming shadow that awaits us all, unfortunately, and that is death. Death is that universal truth, that inevitable truth that awaits us all. It's a silent participant in many ways that accompanies us throughout our lives. Perhaps some of us have been directly affected in profound ways by death. It acts as a poignant reminder in many ways of our mortality, but also the precarity of life. It's a universal destination that we all share, regardless of our religion or our culture or our race and regardless, actually, of the time and space in which we exist. Humans across the millennia have pondered about the precarity of life and their mortality, and the Egyptians were no different. For the ancient Egyptians, death was not the end. It was, however, a momentous event that fractured the vital parts that made up the individual. So these vital parts included the physical body, the, what the Egyptians called the chet. And the chet would house the heart, the center of one's intellect, but also one's memories and one's thoughts. Another vital part that's unique to each individual is the name, the ren. But also, every individual person had or has a car, a life force, as the Egyptians believed. The car can be very loosely translated as the spirit, using English. Another vital part was the ba, loosely translated as a soul, but the ba was also like an alter ego or the personality of the individual. So to surpass death's threatening force and to make sure that all of these vital elements were brought back together 
brought back anew and whole. Complex measures were enacted during life and at death so that the individual can become what the Egyptians believed would be a transfigured being, the Ach, a shining being in many ways, who's able to spend an eternal existence in peace and as a justified transfigured entity. So for our talk today, we're going to go through those complex measures that the Egyptians enacted during life. We'll start with the preparations taken as they were alive, what happened at death, and how we interpret how the Egyptians approached their afterlife. We'll be drawing on key pieces from the exhibition itself, as well as on the rich heritage of the land of Egypt to assess how the Egyptians approached death but also, as I hope you too will see by the end of this talk, how they had a very strong passion for life. So if we were to have a look at what they needed to prepare in life for death, we have to start with one of the most essential elements, which is the burial place. The Egyptians called the burial place itself eternal accommodation. It was that interface between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. A prince by the name of Hor-Jedeh, thousands of years ago, he advised the Egyptians to make their grave felt well furnished and to prepare their place in the west. The west was believed to be not only the place where the sun would set, but also where the dead would gather for their journey into the afterlife, as we will soon see. But before, they had to prepare the grave. Now, to prepare the grave, the degree of investment could change according to one's wealth. But it was a priority, especially for the well-to-do Egyptian, who spared no expense in how they prepared the tomb. Those who were wealthy could structure their tombs in magnificent and monumental ways. Those less well-to-do across time from what we can see, generally and usually were able to just bury a pit, a simple pit for themselves, or their family would bury the pits, just a scoop in the desert, in the sand of the desert. But those wealthy enough to afford it could spend much more resources. And the pharaohs, of course, could have many resources that would go into their tombs. These were distinct and undoubtedly one of the most the most well-known tombs we have of antiquity itself. They were distinct in form, in layout, in structure, in location. They were unique and monumental in every way to be fit for royalty. And that's because the pharaohs had a very different type of afterlife than other individuals. This afterlife was connected to their role as divinities, as divine beings. The pharaohs could join the gods after death. They can become gods themselves after death, be the sun god himself, as we will soon see. So the pharaohs, as having these distinct beliefs, had very different tombs to others around them. And their tombs were intricately designed to achieve their journey to this unique and different afterlife. 
The pharaoh's tombs have also preserved some of the earliest texts that we have about this transition to the afterlife, the different rituals that were required. And these adorned the walls of the inside of the pyramids. Not the pyramids of Giza, but rather the pyramids at Saqqara. Saqqara is a necropolis that's located just south of Giza, as you can see there on the map. Now, these texts we call very simply pyramid texts tell us about the rituals that were involved and they were reserved for the kings and queens at this time. But eventually, more people were able to use them. And as more people were able to use them, they started to include them on their coffins, the walls of their coffins, and then eventually people included them on the walls of their tombs and other objects within the tombs. They developed into what we call today the Book of the Dead. But it's not really a book but rather a collection of spells and rituals that armed the deceased in many ways with, the, with what to say, with what to, where to go, what to utter as they went on the transition into the afterlife. So we're going to have a look at some of these extracts from the Book of the Dead towards the end of the talk. But before we head into there, let's have a look first at what they tell us about this afterlife and the distinction between mortals and pharaohs, or the general populace and the pharaohs. So as the texts change over time, it's important for us to note that funerary beliefs change over time, the tomb designs also change over time. So initially it's believed that the pharaohs in the third millennium BC could join the stars, for example, after death, and the way they would join the stars would change. They could, for example, ascend a stairway to the heaven as written in the pyramid text. They could become imperishable stars. And this is one way to explain, or someone has explained, the, the meaning of the shape of the pyramid itself. There are other ways this can be explained. A thousand years after the pyramids, pharaohs were favoring subterranean complexes carved into the bedrock of the Valley of the Kings. The Valley of the Kings positioned way further south than the area of the pyramids of Giza and Saqqara. At the Valley of the Kings, if we were to have a look, you can't really see which pharaohs are buried where, but Ramses II's tomb is just around this area here. If we were to have a look at the plan of the tomb, we'll find a series of chambers and corridors descending further and further underground. And this is to reflect the beliefs of how the pharaoh was meant to join the sun god on the journey to the underworld through the night to the duat. So as the sun would journey through the duat, the pharaoh was meant to join the sun god as the sun god himself. And this has been verified by the text and images we also find in these, in these tombs. So another thing that I hope you can see in these tombs as well is that the pharaohs had to have very skilled architects, engineers, sculptors, but also a very well-established and organized administration to be able to build these monumental structures. And all of these officials and high craftsmen, skilled craftsmen and sculptors, they too were honored with beautifully decorated tombs. Their tombs are designed differently. So very usually you would have two sections of these tombs, an upper section that would be accessible to the living, and an underground section 
that would be the abode of the dead. Now, the chapel itself was to commemorate the deceased. It was for the visits of the priests and family members and to come and provide offerings for the deceased, but it was also, in, I would say, much of the pharaonic period, a way to commemorate the lives and achievements of the tomb owner. And they decorated their chapel in such a way to make sure you remembered and commemorated their achievements. And from these chapels, we have exceptional snapshots of their lives. For example, Watet Hethor, playing a harp for her husband Meruruka on their bed in the tomb of Meruruka at Saqqara. Or also at Saqqara, and what, what you'll see in the exhibition if you haven't already, is from another tomb dating to Ramses II's reign of the head of an army. And he chose to include a very well-equipped army in his tomb, filled with chariots and soldiers equipped with weapons. Or a very common scene that you'll find is the tomb owner showing himself in the prime of youth. The mayor, Knumhotep II, for instance, wanted to show himself as a very athletic individual while he's fishing and fowling on the fertile waters of the Nile. So these types of scenes were a way to commemorate the deceased so that everyone, including the tomb owner, would able to, be rem to remember these experiences. And what was essential to be remembered? That vital element, the name. And the name was repeated over and over again in the tomb. So with, with uh, prayers, asking visitors to speak out loud the name as they visited the tomb itself. It was a way to remember the deceased. And in another sense, the written word, as well as everything portrayed in such sacred spaces, was also believed to come into reality. As such, by saying the name, that other vital part, the ka, the life force, could be, in a sense, invigorated or charged. So the ka could also be charged via representations in the tomb, reliefs and paintings and statuary. Now, unfortunately, in Knumhotep II's case, his statue is damaged. And in fact, one of the worst punishments that one can inflict on the ancient Egyptians is to intentionally damage or erase their name because that metaphysical connection between the name, the image, the car or life force would be damaged and that would damage the existence in the afterlife. So could there be other steps to reinvigorate the car? And the answer to that would be yes and that's via offerings. So the car, because it was really also connected to the other vital part, the body, it also could have the same sustenance as the body. And that would come in the form of foods. These could be portrayed on walls, depicted, for example, in Knumhotep II's tomb, where his wife Keti receives a beautiful offering table piled with loaves of bread, but also different types of vegetables and fruits and meats, a feast which I'm sure many of you will be having over the next few days as well. So these types of images could also be supported by figurines of butchers and brewers and cooks who would be preparing an endless supply of food and drink for the car, or even offerings placed in the tomb in the chapel for the car to receive. And the Egyptians were very clever in how they designed the 
chapel, creating spaces within it that individuals could place the offerings, specific places, especially in some periods in front of a slab of stone that was inscribed with the name and with a prayer for the offerings of the car. In some periods, this slab of stone is designed as a door, and we call this in Egyptology as a false door. A false door because it leads to nowhere, but metaphysically, it allows the car to emerge through this door to accept the offerings that would be placed on the slab right in front of it. The car emerging from the false door would be connected physically to the body which would be placed in the burial chamber. So it would emerge from the burial chamber through the false door to accept these offerings. And usually in some tombs, the burial chamber was located actually in very close proximity to this false door, as you can see in the plan here. The burial chamber, moving to this second important section of the tomb, this was where the body would lay. It would protect and secure the body. The body also required nourishment. So some burial chambers, the walls are decorated with different offerings as well. Offerings and provisions could be also placed within the burial chamber. And the variety of these provisions are, to us archaeologists, some of the most beautiful to examine because, again, they give us a sense of who these people were and how they lived. So what I'm going to show you next comes from the burial chamber of Kha and Merit. This is how their burial chamber was found by Ernesto Schiaparelli in 1906 with all the provisions inside. Kha was a foreman who worked at the site at the village of Dar el Medina where the, all of the craftspeople and builders and scribes and artists who worked on the tombs of the Valley of the Kings and Queens, this is where they lived at Dar el Medina. And Ka and Marit very likely had colleagues who would work on the tombs of the Kings and Queens, but then who would be able to work on their own friends' tombs, in a sense. So among the objects found within this burial chamber were stunning pieces of furniture. I hope it comes up. There we go like a bed and a chair, chests filled with personal possessions, including jewellery and makeup. One chest even had a wig for Merit. There was a board game, a very famous board game called the Senate game, also placed for Car and Merit to play with one another. And, of course, lots and lots of foods that we have found also in the burial chamber. Alongside these personal possessions were objects that were intended for the protection and the guidance of the deceased through to the afterlife. So these would include then papyri painted with spells from the Book of the Dead, different objects, ritual items and figurines that were also intended to serve that transition into the afterlife. Now, there was one more thing from the burial chamber that's quite important, and that's for the protection of the body. The body containers or vessels can come in different forms. So you can have the coffin that could be made out of wood or metal like silver or even pottery. You can have sarcophagi made out of stone. 
And if you're very wealthy, in some periods, you can even have a nest of coffins, one of a large sarcophagus of stone, and inside of that, you'd have a coffin of wood. Now, you'll probably encounter a number of these coffins throughout the exhibition. And actually, if we were to have a look at the star attraction of the Ramses II exhibition, this is the coffin of Ramses II. It's the inner coffin, originally, of an individual. It's been remade. So it wasn't originally made for Ramses II, but it's been remade, repainted, for the reburial of the king. And in fact, his body was found in this coffin itself. And we know this based on the inscription found just right here on the coffin. The coffin is made out of Lebanese cedar, imported all the way from today's Lebanon and known for its sacred and rejuvenating properties. It is shaped anthropomorphically, so as a human, and you can see the upper half is mostly carved with features, with the head of the pharaoh emerging from the wood, given a nemes headdress, upon which is a striking cobra, and then we have the false beard of um, of the king representing divinity. Within the hands are a flail for might and a crook for guidance, and the arms are crossed over the chest. These symbols of the beard, the, the flail and the crook, the arms crossed, and the rest of the body being devoid of features, they mimic depictions of the god Osiris, the god of the underworld, but also god of rebirth. You see, by this stage in history, the Egyptians identified themselves as Osiris in the sense that they wanted to be made whole again. They wanted to be transfigured after death, just like Osiris was. The myth of Osiris, very briefly, concerns how his sneaky brother, Seth, chopped him up into little pieces, and then it was up to um, Osiris's consorts and sister, Isis, to then bring all those pieces back together and with the help of her own sister, Nephthys, bring Osiris back to life. Now, Isis and Nephthys therefore have protective and rejuvenating roles when it comes to bringing the body back to life. And you can see their representations very commonly alongside ritual items in the burial chamber, including the coffin itself. So if we, have, if we were to have a look at the other main magnificent coffin that you'll see in the exhibition, the coffin of Senegem, you'll also find Isis and Nephthys here. This coffin is an outer coffin. It's shaped like a shrine, very different to the human-shaped coffin we saw earlier of Ramses II. It's beautifully decorated. For Senegem, Similar to Ka and Merit, also lived at that town of Dad and Medina and was very likely also able to hire the best of the best artists to work on his very beautifully decorated tomb. Within his tomb, over 165 objects were found and Senegem himself was buried with 19 other individuals, including his wife, his son, his son's wife and other family members. So it's quite a beautiful tomb. Senegem himself had one of the most beautiful and elaborate burials among those 20. His coffin is painted and decorated very vividly across the different sides. The background is painted yellow, maybe to imitate gold. 
And if we then have a look at some of the depictions, the parts of this coffin, at the head are two goddesses. One goddess has a scorpion, if you can see it right there, as a headdress. This goddess is Selket, the healer of scorpion stings. This goddess next to her is her mother, Neith, who is a goddess of motherhood and of the cosmos and of creation. On the other side of the coffin, we find the two protective goddesses, Isis and Nephthys. So if you ever come across the headdress of a throne, if I can point that here, that represents Isis. And this headdress with almost like a semicircle on top of a rectangle, this is for Nephthys. So Isis and Nephthys here protecting the body of the dead. Further protection is depicted on the sides of the coffin. So let's have a look at the upper sections of, of the coffin itself. We find at the top and at the bottom four divine figures dressed in white. The ones at the top, we have, let me see if I can point this there. All right, Imseti, who is the protector of the liver. And then we have Duamotef, protector of the stomach. Moving to the bottom, Hapi, the baboon-headed uh, divinity there, he's the protector of the lungs. And Kebeh Senuef, the falcon-headed god, the protector of the intestines. So remember these four figures dressed in white. These are the four sons of Horus. And remember their protection of those four organs, which I'll come to a little bit later. They are joined by an ibis-headed creature. This is Thoth the god of wisdom, but also the god of scribes. And then we have the jackal-headed Anubis, who is the god of mummification and embalming. Moving to what's directly under this section here, we do find Anubis, there we go, attending to the body of Senegem. And next to it, a very beautiful detail within the enclosure of Senegem and his wife, Ienefeti, enjoying a pile of offerings, but also it looks like they're enjoying a game of Senate. Nearby, on a shrine-like plinth, are perched two birds with human heads. The human-headed bird is the representation for the soul, the ba, and it was shown as a bird because it was believed to move freely from the body beyond the tomb. But it couldn't get lost, it had to return to the body, and for it to return to the body, it had to recognize the body. So, so far, we've seen what Hodjedef has suggested to prepare for death. You need to have the provisions of the tomb, and you need to have it well furnished, including the provisions that we just saw, like the coffin. But what happened when death finally arrived? What I'm going to show you next is based on observations of what we found from archaeological and historical evidence, but also interpretations of what would happen after death and away from the realm of the living. It's how we interpret what the Egyptians believed very generally. I will be first going through the funerary rites. Again, this would be based on those who can afford these, usually as depicted in the tombs of the elites, and this also changed across time. So by the time of tomb Nebamun, we have the depiction showing that after someone died, the body would be moved from the 
house or where the, where the place of death occurred via a voyage to the west by boat. There, if you can see that here. And the rectangular structure on top of this boat would shield the body from view. This procession would be accompanied by family members, by the heir to the deceased, usually the eldest son, but also by priests, priestesses, and by mourners, some of whom are, we have the most beautifully portrayed depictions of mourners from Egyptian art. And have a look at the way that, that this emotion is shown with the arms raised, the eyes slight, slightly slanted downwards, the mouth open as if they're crying out. And some of them are also reaching for their hair to pull their hair. Beautiful way of showing that emotion of mourning, of lamenting. With the voyage to the west, the body would then reach the necropolis, very generally, and then it would be taken to a purification tent and to the embalming place, where a complex and highly sophisticated set of techniques would be carried out to ensure that the body would remain recognizable for the, for the bar. And these set of techniques are we, what we today call mummification. So in mummification, what happened, perhaps one of the most famous things that we know happened, was the removal of the internal organs. So which internal organs these were, the ones that we saw earlier on the coffins, those of the stomach, the liver, the lungs, and the intestines. These could be placed in some periods within jars with human heads, each representing those four divinities, those four sons of Horus we saw on the coffin itself as well. Once they're removed, any other organs left in the body? One of the most important one, the heart, that was usually kept into the body because it was that center of thoughts and intellect and it would be needed for the transition to the afterlife that would come thereafter. The brain, sometimes it was removed, sometimes it would be kept in the body itself. Oops, I'll just go back to mention one thing here. These sacks under the corpse, these are bundles of natron. Natron and resin were combined in this special antibacterial mixture that was used to treat the body to dehydrate it, but also to preserve and protect it. The body was left around 40 days with this mixture, after, after which the embalmers would come back to the body, treat it again with another additional coat of oils, of resins, of natron, and then they would start with the wrapping. And the wrapping would take around 20 days, and with each layer of linen, protective amulets would be placed, recitations and rituals would be uttered, and then finally, with the, over, with the last layer of the linen, a, a very thick coat of resin would be placed to preserve the body. And again, the reason for its preservation is that so the bar could recognize the body. In some cases, in some periods, they even developed masks that would be placed on the body itself, depicting the individual in the prime of youth or the prime of life so that the bar could recognize it. Sometimes on the body, you can also have objects very unique and close to the individual, representing their identity. Again, for archaeologists, we love to study these objects to get a sense of who these people were. And you'll get to, to see amazing 
pieces that were found on the bodies of princesses in the exhibition. These are, I'm going to focus specifically on the princesses of Knumit and Ita. The burials of Knumit and Ita were found at the site of Dashur, which is very close to Saqqara, as you can see in the map there. Uh, they were discovered between 1894 and 1895 by Jacques de Morgan, a French Egyptologist. So he called this the treasure of Dashur. The burials were found near a pyramid of a king, Amenemhat II. The pyramid itself today is very much a rubble of, of sand, unfortunately. But nearby, the galleries were carved into the stone and made of stone themselves as long corridors. And the long corridor had two openings in the floor. Each would lead to the burial of one of the princesses. So if we were to have a look at the burial of Ita, her burial had two chambers, one for those personal possessions, including a chest for the organs, another chest for sacred oils, and some pottery. And in the main chamber, you had the body of the princess placed in a nested set of coffins. You have the outer stone sarcophagus, you have a middle wooden coffin, and the inner interior coffin is unfortunately so badly decayed that the archaeologist didn't even identify it. He only spotted the silver inlays of the eyes and the necklace that was placed on the coffin. Once these were removed, another collar was found on the body of Princess Ita. Unfortunately, that's not the collar of Princess Ita. This is the collar of Neferupta that you'll find in the exhibition. Ita's collar, as soon as it was found, it was very badly preserved and disintegrated. But it was made up of the same types of beads. So reconstructed, it very much looked like Neferupta's collar. Beads of carnelian and turquoise and lapis lazuli. On the body of Ita were also found armlets on her arms, bracelets on her wrist, and a girdle with a beautiful silver fastener. What I find most interesting is that on the left side of her body, she had scepters and staves, a flail, a stone mace, and on the very left side of her hip was a sheathed dagger. Now, look at how beautiful this is made with a bronze, there we go, a bronze blade, a golden hilt inlaid with rosettes, and a crescent-shaped pommel of lapis lazuli and gold. This type of dagger is not Egyptian. We do have parallels all the way from Western Asia, from Mesopotamia, for example. So part of my research is having a look at why Ita was buried with this dagger. Egyptologists usually follow de Morgan's suggestion that she was buried with this dagger for protection in the afterlife against dangerous creatures. This is possible, but I would like to suggest another reason. At the time of Ita's burial, we actually have a phenomenon that's attested across northeastern Africa, western Asia, and the eastern Mediterranean. And this is of the so-called warrior burials, more accurately, the weapon burials. These have been typically identified as exclusively of men who would be buried with daggers on the left side of the body or and with other weapons like spears, axes, or bows and arrows as well. But what if I were to tell you 
that it wasn't only the men that were buried with these weapons. There's a select group, a small handful of cases that I found of women at Dashur, other sites in Egypt, very limited sites, and also at such sites as Abalbak in Lebanon and Kerma in the Sudan. Women buried with weapons, very powerful, wealthy, elite women buried with weapons. So why do we approach these as protection in the afterlife? Should we instead approach these as how the men buried with weapons are approached? That is, either as warriors, but there's no evidence that this weapon has been used in life, or as these individuals being part of a trans-regional exclusive group of wealthy, interconnected individuals. And maybe Ita wanted to show that she was part of this exclusive group by including this on her body for her bar to recognize as uniquely hers. So now that we've seen what happens once the body is wrapped and the individual unique pieces are placed on the body, the body would then be moved to the burial. The next few slides are taken specifically from the Book of the Dead, those of the papyrus of Hunefer who lived in the reign of Ramses II. Again, it's important to note that the funerary ritual from the embalming place to the tomb and what happened afterwards changed across time. Based on around Ramses II's time, what would happen is a procession from the embalming place of the body, again accompanied by different priests and priestesses, specialized priests that would offer libations, burn incense, recite different rituals, and then you would have also the mourners, in Hunifer's case, shown reaching for their head to pull their hair, and one of them is reaching to the ground to throw dust onto her head in a gesture of mourning. Notice one person is carrying funerary equipment. And as a very, very briefly, I will say that a thousand years before this was composed, it's actually believed that the wealthiest of Egyptians would conduct funerals for the funerary equipment itself, for the statue that would go to the tomb, for the sarcophagus, the coffin that would go to the tomb. And this has been convincingly argued by Nagib Kanawati, who's, who's sitting here as well. So once these rituals would take place, the tomb would be reached. Another complex set of rituals would occur in front of the tomb, in front of the chapel that you can see represented on the papyrus of Hunefer. And this would include a very important ritual called the opening of the mouth, where specialized priests, again, sometimes the heir to the deceased, the eldest son, would use particular tools that would reach to the parts of the body either the body itself or its representation like a statue, to reactivate the senses. So the mouth could be open, for example, to receive offerings to and for the afterlife. So this would reactivate the senses once more to ensure an uncomplicated transition to the afterlife. So what then happened? The body after this set of rituals would be placed in the burial chamber, any leftover provisions and offerings in the chamber itself. The chamber is sealed, any tunnels or shafts back, backfilled. A feast would then happen in the chapel in, commemora in commemoration of the deceased. And then while this is happening in the land of the living, the deceased would have already embarked on the journey to the afterlife. So dangerous gates had to be traversed 
treacherous creatures passed until the deceased would reach what is called the Hall of Judgment. The Hall of Judgment would, be, would, um, would include a tribunal of 42 gods presided over by the god Osiris. And you can see Isis and Nephthys also standing next to Osiris here. Very important for the judgment that would take place was the heart. Again, the center of one's intellect and thought and memories. That's why it was also important to keep it in the body. The heart would be weighed on a scale against the feather, the feather of truth, of order, which is also called the feather of mart in, in ancient Egyptian. And we'll then see what would happen. The deceased would have to utter 42 declarations of innocence, declaring that no... no, no uh, bad deed was conducted in life. To make sure that the heart remembered correctly, the Egyptians even developed an amulet that was placed on the heart of the corpse to make sure that it didn't speak out against the deceased, like the heart scarab of Wen Bowenjet that's also in the exhibition. So a lot of precautions were taken to make sure that the deceased, that the heart, wouldn't lead to a very unfortunate outcome. If all of these precautions went to plan, then the heart would balance with the feather. And here in this case, I'm not sure if you can see the heart actually is a little bit lighter than the feather itself. Once this happened, the deceased would be declared true of voice and they would be able to go into the realm of Osiris. If, however, the heart was heavier than the feather, then Amit, the gobbler, would be awaiting to gobble it up. And that would mean the deceased would cease to exist. But again, all of those precautions would make sure this didn't happen, right? So then what happened in the realm of the dead? The afterlife was reached. Again, this is based on only one way of describing the afterlife. There are different ways that the Egyptians describe this afterlife. It could be celestial. It could be uh, earth, an earth, like an idealized version of earth. And this included the fields of Yaru, as depicted in the tomb of Senegem. The fields of Yaru or the fields of reeds, you can see Senegem and Ianefiti here partaking in, um, in, har in harvesting the fields in this idealized version of their life on earth. So with the body protected and prepped, the car able to go back and forth from the burial chamber to accept the offerings, and the bar able to travel across the body, beyond the tomb, and then back recognizing the body, what would happen is that the transfigured Ach, with all of these different vital parts, was also constantly traveling between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. And as such, they could also act as intermediaries on behalf of the living, who would call upon the dead for their supernatural intervention to offer them advice, but also to help them out in particularly challenging problems. And we're very fortunate to have these requests from the living to the dead in what are known as the letters to the dead. And what's interesting is that some of these letters, I think most of them are actually inscribed on ceramic bowls that would be filled with offerings to entice the car to come and eat the offerings, read the letter, and act on behalf of the living. So, in a sense, all of these vital parts show us that death was not, an, well, not the end, it was that transition from 
the realm of the living to the realm of the dead. It was always integrated and interconnected with the... Um, it was always integrated and interconnected with the realm of the living. So this would, to wrap this all up, Egyptologists have usually approached everything that we've seen, all the archaeological and historical evidence, as traditionally the Egyptians' obsession with death, all of the preparations that they took during life for death itself. But hopefully by the end of this talk you've seen that the preparation and journey to the afterlife also showed that the Egyptians wanted to be continually remembered by the living, to be integrated into the realm of the living. The afterlife and the dead itself was closely interconnected to this afterlife. So I hope you agree with me that it shows their commitment to life. The Egyptians knew that their time in this realm was limited and they desired an eternity with their loved ones, partaking in their most cherished life experiences as they chose to remember them. And as we are fortunate enough to encounter them as these Egyptians continue to, to exist, to be alive, and to remain strong in our own collective memories. Thank you all for your time, and I look forward to any questions that you can, may have. Yep. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.